morning, everybody. It's good to be with you this morning. Excited to continue on in our series. Uh, I think it's really interesting how some people in our, in our culture, in our nation, become kind of synonymous or iconic for certain things. So if I threw out to you the name Elvis Presley, he would have been known as king of rock and roll. If, if I'd said Michael Jordan, he is great, purple. I heard purple. Did I hear purple from somebody? Greatest basketball player of all time. If I said Michael Jackson, and we were keeping it clean, he would be the king of pop. Good. Uh, what if I said Richard Nixon? What's he known for? Watergate. Good. And when I say Derek Brockie, amazing, yep. handsome. Yep. If you're listening over audio, you should hear the amazing things that are being said um, about me. Um, but then you've got some people who kind of supersede these, these moments or these iconic uh, statements. Uh, they're, they're a lot bigger to us than just that. If I said, who is the greatest American president of all time, what, what's an answer you give me? Okay, I hear Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. All right, who, who thinks it's George Washington? Okay, who thinks it's Abraham Lincoln? Good. All right, that's, thank you. Yes, back there, I hear you. I would totally agree with you. I would, I would say Abraham Lincoln would probably be my number one, and then George Wa- Washington would probably be in a close second, but why is that a relatively easy answer for us? Why is it relatively consensus that Abraham Lincoln was the greatest? I think it's because Lincoln was not just associated with a certain moment or incident. Lincoln was in many ways the leader who not only held our entire country together during the greatest crisis, he also gave dignity to an entire race and changed the way that they were treated in our nation. Um, His influence went far beyond just a certain field or a certain moment. He quite literally reshaped the history of our nation. And I would say that this is the kind of figure that we're looking at today in King David. Uh, if, you're, if you're just uh, coming here for the first time today, we're in the middle of a series called Fulfilled, how we find Jesus through the Old Testament. And over the last couple weeks, we've already co- covered a couple themes that Jesus fulfills. First was the promised one, that Jesus is the promised one, as we see throughout Genesis and throughout all of the Old Testament. Then we also saw last week how uh, Jesus is the Lamb of God. He brings a great, greater fulfillment to what it means to be the Lamb of God. And this week, we're looking at what it means that Jesus is the Son of David. David, in many ways, is the most iconic and unifying figure of the entire Old Testament. There are really three major pillars of redemptive history that the Old Testament centers around. And I would say that that's the Exodus, and then the establishment of the Davidic kingdom, and then the exile and return from exile. Really, the Old Testament centers around these three pillars of redemptive history, and all of them can be viewed in light of David, or in relation to David. Before David came, the the people are longing for a king. God actually set up Israel as a theocracy, as, as as a people that he would rule alone. So even though Moses is leading the people out of Egypt, he's leading them into the wilderness and and doing incredible things, or Joshua is leading them in conquest of the promised land, it's God who's clearly doing the miraculous and caring work for his people. And then, even though Israel had seen God's incredible provision over them, even though they had seen the way he led them out of Egypt and did miraculous works and cared for them and provided for them and gave them the promised land, they still said, no, we don't want to have faith in God alone. We we desire an earthly ruler to unify us. They still did not trust God as their king. 
So finally, the people completely break down and they reject God as their sole ruler and they cry out to Samuel for a king. Now God tells Samuel, Samuel, warn the people what's going to happen if they, if they get a king. He says, he's going to turn away from me. He's not going to follow me faithfully. He's going to take your sons into the army. He's going to break up your families. But in the end, the people still say, no, we want a king. And God allows the people to have their earthly ruler. And so almost to prove a point, God gives them Saul. And so everybody else who looked at Saul would have thought, hey, this is a great candidate for a ruler. Saul is tall. He's handsome. Everybody knows who he is. The people like him. But Saul had one fatal flaw. Saul was completely ruled by the fear of man. When he's being coronated, Saul is actually hiding because he's afraid of what the people are going to think of him. He doesn't want to take on that role. He doesn't trust in God. And then even when this, the kingdom is being ripped away from Saul, Saul, all he can think about is his image. He says, well, God, at least come back with me. At least, at least don't let me go back to the people alone because that would be shameful for me. At least... I'm sorry, Sam, uh, Samuel, come back with me. At least come back so that I don't look foolish in front of the people. And so then God moves on and selects David. Now David is a contrast in every way to who Saul is. Instead of being the biggest, David is the smallest. David is forgotten by his own family. When Samuel says, bring all the brothers out and I'm going to select a king, his father forgets that David exists. And then instead of being the one who is out in front of the people, David is hidden away. He's tending the sheep. He's, he's learning to worship the Lord. He's not the one who's out there and obvious as the choice for a king. Instead of hiding behind Israel's armies in fear of the enemy, David goes out in front. He's standing in place of the people. And the bottom line is, instead of fearing man, David feared God. Instead of fearing man, David fears God. This is what Paul says about David in Acts 13, 21 through 22. Paul says that God raised David up to be their king, of whom God testified and said this, I have found in David a man after my heart who will do all my will. You see, David was an earthly king with a heaven-bound will. His direction, his delight, his decrees were all determined by his love for God. He understood that he had nothing apart from God's approval and delight in the law. Now, we know that David was an incredibly flawed leader, right? We all know the stories of what David did. And yet, somehow, the kingdom of Israel flourished under him. And I believe that that's because he was a conduit of God's will among his people. Under David, the promises of God's covenant to Abraham seemed like they were coming true. It seemed like everything was happening. So, so under David, not only did they have the land, but they had peace on every side, it says. Not only under David was their name becoming great, but people were coming in. The queen of Sheba comes in just to see if it's true how great Solomon and the kingdom of Israel is. Kings were bringing their riches to Israel. Nations were coming in just to be blessed by Israel, as it was said to Abraham, that through you, every nation, every family on the earth will be blessed. But even David, the greatest human ruler that Israel could ever imagine, couldn't cause his blessing, the goodness of his rule, to continue past even one kingdom. While Solomon did enjoy a, king, a kingdom that experienced unprecedented peace and prosperity, he also had a fatal flaw, and that was women. He went after women of all different kinds of nations. I think it was 700 wives and 300 concubines. And along with those women, he said, okay, I guess you can bring your gods as well. He didn't 
hold the line when it came to worshiping God alone. And so because of this, after the death of Solomon, things took a terrible turn. Almost immediately, the kingdom splits into the northern and southern tribes of Israel and Judah. Now, Chronicles and Kings gives us the account of these, of these kings' rules. And in Kings, it tells us that there was not one good ruler in the northern kingdom. And in the southern kingdom, there was only five or, or so good rulers. People that it said they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. After David's death, see, there's a constant looking back to this time of when, of when David ruled and when things were good and when the kingdom seemed to be uh, established. In 2 Chronicles 29.2, the author tells us about Hezekiah, who's a good king. It says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David, his father, had done. In 2 Chronicles 34.2, we're told about Josiah, another good king. It says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father, David. About King Ahaz, a wicked king, the author says, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father, David, had done. David became a reference point and a plumb line for what it meant to follow God faithfully as a king. But as Israel and Judah failed over and over again, they descended further and further from God's call on them as a people to be a blessing to the nations, to be set apart. And instead, they, they adopted other gods. They allowed uh, high places to be set up and other worship to go on until things were so bad that both the northern and the southern tribes are taken in, into captivity and exile. So during these desperate times of the wicked kings and eventually an exiled nation, David transitioned as a figure of the past. He transitioned from this longed-for king of the past into the hoped-for savior for the future. Prophet after prophet proclaim his coming hope. Isaiah 16.5 says, Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Jeremiah 23.5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Ezekiel 34.24, And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among, among them. Ezekiel 37.24, my, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. I will make a covenant of peace with them, it shall be an everlasting covenant, and I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. So the coming David, whoever this was, they knew that a covenant was coming with this person, that the land was coming back with this person, that God's very presence in their midst was coming back with this person. These prophecies were meant to cause Israel to stop looking back at what they had lost and to start looking forward toward what was coming. See, the pinnacle of Israel's history, just to recap, was the Davidic kingdom. The Old Testament is either looking forward to the Davidic kingdom, it's in the middle of the Davidic kingdom, or it's looking back and remembering that kingdom. But God was not surprised by the failure of this plan. God was not surprised that the kings could not maintain righteousness generation after generation. Even from before anything started going wrong, in the middle of David's rule when everything was going well, David runs to, to uh, Nathan the prophet and says, Nathan, I want to build God a house. See, I live in this, I live in this, uh, this palace, but God is dwelling in a tent. And so Nathan says, well, go, be blessed. Do whatever you want to do. But then God says, no, David can't build me a house. He has too much blood on his hands. His son's going to do that. But go back and tell David that actually I want to build him a house. 
And so this is what, what uh, God tells to David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, if you remember in the first week of this whole series, when I talked about the ways that we find Christ in the Old Testament, I talked about something called telescoping. Does anybody remember me saying that word? Telescoping. In other words, it's a prophecy that has an immediate fulfillment and also a prophecy that has a future fulfillment. The fullness does not come right away. And we can see many ways in which Solomon actually brings some fulfillment to this prophecy, right? Solomon built the most grand temple that Israel had ever known. If we go to Ezra and Nehemiah, we see that the foundation of the temple is laid, and anybody who was alive when the first temple was built starts weeping because it's not even close to the grandeur of that first temple that Solomon built. Under Solomon, a mighty kingdom was established that became the envy and the wonder of the world. One could even say that Solomon was disciplined by the rod of men when the kingdoms were disciplined and went into exile after his death. But Solomon didn't even get close to, get, to fulfilling everything that God prophesies here. It's so clear that even here, even before the kingdom begins to fall away, that God has somebody far beyond Solomon in mind. And in fact, all over the life of David, I would say that we see shadows of who Christ is. David was the least likely candidate to be king. He wasn't even brought before Samuel. And Jesus, in Isaiah 53, it says that there was nothing in his appearance that would attract us to him. Just as David was hidden away in faithfulness to God before anyone knew who he was, Jesus was hidden away for 30 years. And then he had a short time of three years of ministry. Just as David stood as one man representing the people before Goliath, Jesus stood as one man representing humanity to defeat sin and death. Just as David was promised Saul's daughter as his bride if he would defeat the giant, Jesus won for himself a bride when he defeated the enemy. And just as David declared, I will not offer to God a sacrifice that costs me nothing, Jesus became the sacrifice, and it cost him his very life. There's so many ways in which Jesus is just like David, but I would also say that there's many ways in which David and Jesus are nothing alike. There's things that Jesus brings into this story that David couldn't have even dreamed of. I want us to go back to the passage where it talks about Israel requesting a king. That's 1 Samuel 8, if you'd like to turn there. 1 Samuel 8. This passage is a key turning point for the people of Israel. It's the point, I believe, that started them down the road of faithlessness and idolatry and suffering. I want to remind you that God's original intent for Israel is that he would rule over them forever. He would be their king. God intended to care for Israel and to fight for Israel, to make his name great through Israel, to bless the nations through Israel. But Israel said that's not good enough for us. Israel demanded something immediate, something physical, a ruler who they could see and touch, a ruler who could be present with them. Their faith was being tested, but instead of turning to God, they turned to what was comfortable. So Israel requests a king, and Samuel says, 
This is not good. And, and God says, tell them what's going to happen. And so we've already recounted this a little bit. Tell them what's going to happen. But even after they hear all the ter- terrible things the king would do, Israel still says this in verse 19. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. What a sad moment this is. Even with their incredible history passed on from generation to generation, they would have known every story. There's only a few generations removed from everything incredible that had happened. They would have known about God's miraculous works in Egypt, how he confronted and took down the most powerful ruler in the world. They would have known the way that God conquered the nations of the promised land. This is where the Lord literally fell the greatest walls that had ever been seen by his people walking around them and blowing trumpets. They would have remembered how Gideon took 300 men and defeated 120,000 men by blowing trumpets and breaking clay jars. This was the God that they served. But no, no matter how indescribable and awesome were the works and victories of God, Israel wanted to have a king just like the nations. The very people of God that he had called to be holy that he called to be set apart, that he called to be distinct from the nations, that people said, no, we would rather have comfort than have God. This request was not just slightly off track. It wasn't a little mistake. This is what Samuel says about this decision in chapter 12, verse 17 of 1 Samuel. You shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So then I would ask, naturally, why did God allow this? Why would God allow for Israel to go down such a dark path? Why would he allow for this great wickedness to somehow be worked into his sovereign plan? Why didn't God just punish that wickedness? Why didn't he just make an example of that people and set them back on track with the theocracy? Why did God allow for evil king after evil king after evil king to lead his people astray until all they had was desolation and exile and hope for something coming in the future. I believe that God did this for one main reason. He wanted to make it absolutely, undeniably clear that only God can be king of his people. Only God can be king of his people. Israel wanted comfort. Israel wanted security. Israel wanted to be like the nations. But they found out that what they needed all along was more of God. And here's the thing. I think it's really easy for us to look at Israel and say, how in the world could they make that decision? How in the world could they remember and look back and see how God had brought their ancestors out of slavery in Egypt? How he parted the Red Sea and they walked across on dry ground. He caused bread and quail to fall from the sky to feed them in the wilderness. He took down nations with worship. How could they do this? But I think, I know I need to be cautious before I point the finger too quickly at Israel. Because I want to ask, who else is it that can look back and see God's mighty works and his miraculous power on full display? Who else is a few generations removed from some of the most incredible events in history? Who else can look back and remember and see salvation from slavery? Who else has been called to believe in what they cannot see? 
Who else is it that says, yes, I want God, but also a little bit of this? Yes, I want God, but also I want a little bit more financial security. Yes, I want God, but it won't hurt to just be a little bit more like the culture around us. Yes, I want God, but just a little bit more comfort. Or maybe a little bit more of this Christian leader. For me, it might be, I want God, but maybe a little bit of Piper. I just want to live vicariously a little bit through his experience of God. Every one of us have to look at God and say, you, in you alone, is everything that I need. Yes, I can, I can utilize the resources you've given me, but if I'm becoming dependent on something other than God for my security, for my salvation, for my hope, then there's something wrong. We might not be crying out for an earthly, physical ruler, but many in our culture today are. We see it happening all the time. But we certainly reach out for things all the time that give us just a little bit more control over our lives. We reach out for things that give us just a bit more earthly security, even while we're still kind of trusting in God. And Christ would say, no, in me is all you need. Come to me and be satisfied completely. Come to me and be cared for completely. Come to me and trust me completely. Lose your life for my sake and you will find it. Man, I think that, that's so difficult. I see in myself the same tendencies that Israel had for sure. I want to go to other things all the time. And, and when I look back at how Israel had everything they had, they could look back on all these miracles and yet they were so prone to wander. I say, how is it going to be different for me? How am I not going to have the exact same fate as Israel? What separates me from them? What, what happened when they disobeyed? They went into exile. But here's the key difference. Israel was punished for their disobedience by going into exile. But for our disobedience, our king went into exile for us. For our disobedience, our king was the one who suffered. Rather than a king who gave peace to Israel on every side, our king gives us peace within. Rather than a king who is punished by the rods of men for his own disobedience, he's punished by the rod of men for our disobedience. And as I said before, David couldn't set up a kingdom that was powerful enough to defeat Israel's own wickedness. That's exactly what our king has done. He's, he's not the king who is here beside us. He is our God who is within us. He's our God who empowers us to say yes to what's right. He empowers us by transforming us and conforming us to his will that we would say yes to the things that he loves and say no to the things that he hates. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Ultimately, we are clothed in his perfection. We see that he completed what we could not. And so every time we fail, we throw ourselves back on his mercy. We call again on his grace. We ask him to transform us and help us to choose after him the way that Israel could not. Ultimately, Jesus, yes, he is a man. He is a man who came and empathized with us. He can understand our weakness. He walked the path that we walked. But Jesus is also God. In Jesus alone is where God ruling his people and man ruling his people come together in a perfect unity. We get God who is miraculous, who is all-knowing, who knows us better than we know ourselves, but we get the companion who's with us. And we get to do it all knowing that it is God alone that we are serving. 
I'd like to invite the worship team to go ahead and come up as we begin with our uh, ending worship set. And perhaps some of you are feeling today that you're prone to throw yourself onto something other than Christ. You're prone to throw yourself into some other comfort or some other security. And I would say we have to be people who throw ourselves onto God alone. We throw ourselves onto Christ alone. Let's stand up, and I'm going to pray as we transition. And if you are on the prayer team and, uh, and are able to go to the sides of the sanctuary today, uh, go ahead and make your way there. Or if you're just willing to pray for people and you're feeling like you, you want to minister to somebody today, you're welcome also to go to the sides. And, uh, and as we begin worship, I want us to just uh, deal with this in our hearts before the Lord and to worship him. Let's not let somebody else rule on the throne of our hearts. Let's not let some other love be the thing that captivates us. Jesus has won the victory for us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for a community, a place, Lord, where we can come and uh, refocus, reset our gaze every day. We thank you for a place where we can be encouraged and exhorted on toward loving you, to be fully committed to you. Jesus, we thank you that you did what no earthly king could do, Lord. You defeated the enemy that is within us. You defeated that thing in our hearts that wants to go astray. And Lord, we still feel it. We still feel that we want to wander. But Lord, we know that you are transforming us. You're conforming us into the image of your son. And so we submit ourselves again to you, Lord. So as we worship God, I pray that you would transform our hearts and our minds. I pray that you would put it on our hearts to minister to one another. I pray that you'd help us to deal with those things that we're wrestling with, Lord, those other loves that have captivated our hearts, that we would lay them down before you today and be once again fully committed to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.